Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to Victor Radio. And let's see, all I got for you is start out. Let's see, I got that. I'll start off playing a song. And this is the viable book here on Chupi Tori. Thank you.
And now for our lesson, which is the complexity of divine love here on Tripitori. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking to you on some subjects that are on my heart, sort of a little bit of a chain of things that the Lord has laid on my heart that basically come out of uh, some of our more recent studies. It was a few weeks ago at a Sunday morning communion service that I gave a message on the atonement. Uh, It had uh, a very good reaction, I think, at least so far, all has been positive. But more than that, it had a very wide reaction. I had an awful lot of feedback to that message about the fact that Jesus Christ died a real death, an actual atonement was provided for all who would believe, not a potential atonement, but an actual atonement. That Jesus didn't die for everybody potentially, He died for His own specifically, particularly, and actually. That is a view of the atonement that is historic. That is the New Testament view of the atonement, first of all, and has been held through the ages by those who rightly understood the New Testament. Jesus died an actual death, paid an actual penalty for all who would believe. He died for His own people. He laid down His life, He said, for His sheep. He knows His sheep, He said in John 10, and His sheep know Him eventually. It is for them that He died. Now this death that Jesus died is prompted by the love of God. God so loved the world, that is, humanity, that He gave His only Son. Obviously, that love for humanity has a specific and particular application to those who believe. God loves all men uh, in some ways, but He loves His own savingly. You hear a lot of talk about the love of God, God loving the world. You sometimes hear people say God loves everyone unconditionally. People can get a little bit carried away with, with this notion that, that, that the Lord loves everyone on the planet the same way. Typically it is people who do not understand the limits of the atonement, the particularity of the atonement, specificity of the atonement, the actuality of the atonement, who also don't understand the nature of how God loves. Uh, One way to understand it would be in a simple uh, illustration. We, We basically are instructed in Matthew 5 by our Lord to love everybody, to love even our enemies. And this is, a, this is an evidence that we are the sons of our Father, for even He loves His enemies. And of course, all men born into this world are born 
His enemies. And so as believers, we endeavor to be obedient to that command and to demonstrate that we are sons of our Father, that we bear some of the characteristics of our Father who is God, and we endeavor to love our enemies. That carries with it certain responses and certain obligations. But there is a, another kind of love altogether that we have for believers. There is a kind of love within the family of God that takes on very different proportions and very different features. I suppose you could liken it to the human realm where you are to love your neighbor and you endeavor to do that because it's the second commandment, but it's pretty hard to love your neighbor the same way you love your own family. I think we understand that. We, we understand that there's a kind of love that we give to strangers and neighbors, and there's another kind of love with different proportions and different dimensions and different responses that we give to our family. And then moving back through our little trio of thinking, we also have a love for the enemies of the cross and the enemies of the gospel in the world. But it's a very different kind of love in demonstration and in proportion to the love that we have for those who are in the family of God and the body of Christ. And this is all a manifestation, in a sense, of how God loves. Does He love all men? Yes. Uh, he loves them in the way that it is described for us. For example, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and that's a good place to begin our thinking. In Matthew chapter 5, I just made reference to it a moment ago, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what you've heard. But I say to you, love your enemies as well as your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So you're to love your enemies the way God loves His enemies. How does God love His enemies? He loves His enemies in a way that He pours on them certain temporal blessings. He lets them enjoy a sunrise. He lets them enjoy life in the world, if you will. That's what that sunrise sort of indicates. The day and the joys of the day and the joys of life. And He lets the rain fall on them so that their crops will grow and, and they can be fed. Their animals will flourish. In other words, this is the love that theologians have always called common grace. God loves all men in this very broad-based way of being benevolent to them in their temporal lives. In this sense, 1 Timothy 4.10 says He's the Savior of all men. Now, we all understand that the wages of sin is death, right? Or to use the Old Testament language, the soul that sins, it shall die. And death is the penalty for every sin, and yet we sin and we go on living. All men sin and they go on living. And this is to demonstrate that God loves man in a temporal way by withholding from them the judgment that they deserve. He does not give it when sinners deserve it as a general rule. He, in Romans 2.4, reveals to us through the Apostle Paul that he is demonstrating forbearance. 
He is demonstrating patience to sinners in order that it might lead them to repentance from their sin. God is patient. God is characterized by goodness and kindness. God withholds judgment. God lets sinners enjoy life, the sunshine, the rain, and all that life produces of beauty and delight. This is the way He loves everyone. And this is similar to the way we are called upon uh, to demonstrate as Christians that we are sons of our Father by loving people in a temporal sense, in the sense that we demonstrate compassion to them, in the sense that we do good to them. Uh, we, we do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, but we do good to all men. We are called upon to demonstrate that kind of love that alleviates their suffering, that demonstrates kindness, that shows mercy, compassion, and sympathy to them, that makes provision for them, that gives space in our world for them, that shows kindness to them. But in the case of God, there's a completely different kind of love that He demonstrates to His own, even as there is a different kind of love that we demonstrate to the body of Christ, those who are fellow believers. This is a love that is unique. This is a love that is specific. This is a love that has not a temporal end in view, but a spiritual end in view, an eternal end in view. Common grace, that love of God which allows sinners to enjoy the best of this world, is a temporary and a physical expression of love. But the kind of love that we're talking about that comes to those who belong to Him, who are His chosen, is an eternal love and a spiritual love. Now all of us are born into the world as sinners, all of us. No one escapes that. We are born in sin. We are born as enemies of God. We are all rejectors of God. We are all rejectors of His love. And yet, in His sovereign purpose, He penetrates that rejection which is universal, even though He pours out the goodness of common grace, rejection is universal. And left to ourselves, we would all reject God permanently and all perish and all end up in hell. But God penetrates that universal rejection to give some sinners a special love. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. He chooses to penetrate and forgive certain sinners, set on them special love which is spiritual and eternal. And it is for those that He is determined to love by His uninfluenced sovereign choice, it is for those that He provided a real atonement. So He does love the world with a generous, sparing, compassionate, providential love, and even offers to them the good news of salvation by faith in Him. This compassionate love, this goodness of God, this gospel offer is meant to 
waken the sinner to God's saving nature and lead that sinner to repentance. But because of the utter wickedness of the sinful heart, the sinner stubbornly persists in rejection, and that persistence will plunge the sinner into hell itself. But along the way, as all of us are in the category of rejectors by nature of this vast love of God, there is a love that breaks through the impenetrable barrier from the divine side. This love is not for everyone. It is limited to those whom the Lord chooses to love. It is this love that is the most stunning and staggering aspect of God's love in Scripture. And I want you to understand it biblically. Open your Bible now at this moment to John 13. John 13. And I'm going to show you a number of Scriptures that will help us to get a grip on this love. My purpose in doing this is to let you know as a believer what God has by His sovereign will determined to do for you and through you and to you and with you forever to His everlasting glory and your everlasting joy. In John 13, 1, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Here we are introduced to this love by which our Lord loves His own who were in the world. And the last phrase is what I want to point you to. He loves His own who are in the world with a love that is to the end. Ice telos in the Greek, to the max, to the uttermost, to the finish, to completion, to perfection, comprehensively. It's a very, very sweeping statement. In fact, it is a form of the statement that is translated in the New Testament forever, eternally. He has a love for all men in a physical, temporal sense by which they experience common grace and certain temporal and physical blessings, but He loves His own eternally, eternally. He does not love everyone eternally, clearly. Those who continue to reject Him will feel not His love, but His hate. In Psalm 5.5 it says, You hate all who do iniquity. So on the one hand, we can say that there is a love of God that is uh, temporal and physical, demonstrated to all sinners in the fact that judgment is withheld, the gospel is presented, common grace is dispensed to them, but when rejection is permanent and final, that love will turn into hate. That hate will end up in judgment. But for some whom our Lord has identified from before the foundation of the world, their rejection is penetrated 
by a love that isn't simply temporal and physical, but a love that is spiritual and everlasting. It is love to the max, to use the language of John 13:1. It is love to the fullest extent. It is love unlimited. It is love that cannot be measured in degrees, for it is everlasting love. And we who have come to know Christ have become, by the sovereign purposes of God, the beneficiaries, not because we deserved it, not because we are less sinful than anybody else, but purely because God has chosen to set His love on us. It is a wonder of all wonders. Now I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to look at uh, several Old Testament texts. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is referring to Israel. Probably should go down to verse 6. We commented on this recently, this same passage. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. If you're having any trouble with the great doctrine of sovereign election, you need to sort of camp on this verse for a while and ask yourself why Israel was blessed by God. Was it something they had earned? Was it something they had deserved? No. It is simply because God, the Lord your God, has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then in verse 7 it says, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because of the great impact you were having on the world. It wasn't because of the massive influence you had by the sheer force of numbers. Not at all. It was, verse 8, because the Lord loved you. He set His love on you. He chose you simply because He loved you. Why did He love them? Because He determined to love them. God chose Israel not because they were better than other nations, not because they were bigger than other nations, not because they were more worthy than other nations, but purely because He determined to love them. And by the way, it, it wasn't the whole nation. It was not the entire nation. It was not the entire race of Jews from Abraham on through all of human history. It was always only going to be a remnant, a small number of Jews within the nation Israel. In Romans chapter 9, we understand how this unfolds. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. And this is taken from the Old Testament, Isaiah 10:22. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Though the numbers themselves are like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Paul says in Romans 2, not all Israel is Israel. Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. 
So Deuteronomy 7 is simply saying God chose this nation, and out of this nation He chose to love a people eternally, a remnant out of that nation. There was a remnant early in their history as the nation went apostate and stayed that way with a few recoveries along the way. It was always a a group within the nation who were the true Israelites on whom God had set His love. And it is so even today. There is a remnant. It will be so in the future when at the end of the age the Lord saves all Israel. A greater revival of Jews coming to salvation than any time in history after the rebels are purged out, it's still a remnant. And this is by divine design. I don't think there's any better way to show you the reality of this. Certainly there's no more dramatic way to show it to you than to have you look at Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. This is uh, the most interesting chapter in Ezekiel's prophecy, and uh, there are many, many interesting chapters in Ezekiel. When I did the uh, study Bible, uh, which came out back in 1996, the first set of notes I wrote on any book in the Bible uh, was on the book of Ezekiel. I went away for uh, two or three weeks and isolated myself with the book of Ezekiel to work out all the notes in Ezekiel and uh, to cull them all down to explain all of the very challenging aspects of Ezekiel. I remember that, that period of time very well. Long days, long hours, little sleep, wrestling with this tremendous book. I also remember that after three weeks, I was finished with Ezekiel and I said to myself, one down and sixty-five to go. This will never happen. This will never happen. But by the goodness of the Lord, it did. And it was during that time of going through Ezekiel that the sixteenth chapter became a powerful, powerful chapter that had an impact, a lasting impact on my mind and on my heart. This is a vivid chapter. It's the most vivid chapter in Ezekiel's prophecy, maybe the most forceful, and there are a lot of very vivid chapters. It demonstrates God's forgiving eternal love that penetrates rejection and seeks out its object. The story of Israel is presented in the 16th chapter. It really is a, a chapter on history in a kind of a, kind of a symbolic way. It is um, ugly almost loathsome, sordid imagery. Some of the rabbis said that it should never be read in public, so they skipped it. It focuses on the gracious, electing, saving, forgiving, eternal love of God for His own inside Israel. It was the nation Israel who received the common grace, the blessings of God, as we said this morning, the prophets, the covenants, the adoption, the promises, the Messiah. But within that nation, the remnant received that special love, that eternal saving love. And you see it in this chapter. Let's move through it rapidly because there's 63 verses here. 
The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, that's what Ezekiel is called, son of man. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. All right, you're going to bring a prophecy to Jerusalem. It's going to be another one of these warning prophecies about the judgment to come, which, of course, is the Babylonian captivity, which comes in 586 B.C. to start with, uh, to, to end with, rather, after two earlier deportations into Babylon, culminating in 586 B.C. with the final deportation. This is the judgment of God as they're hauled off for 70 years to live in Babylon. So this is an Ezekiel revelation from God that is going to explain this history that has led to this coming judgment. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Amorites and Hittites, by the way, were general names for the dwellers in Canaan. And what this is saying is referring us to the pagan origins of Jerusalem. In its uh, original form, Jerusalem was a pagan place occupied by the Jebusites. It was idolatrous. And, of course, it had reverted back to being very idolatrous. It had gone back to its Canaanite origins, if you will, by Ezekiel's day, and that's why Ezekiel was in the early deportations of the people of Israel into Babylon in the captivity. So he says your, your origins were from Canaanites, Amorites, and Hittites. You remember when they came into the land, those were the people who were there. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. When the nation was first formed and first brought together and first called by God, the nation was frail and defenseless and poor and liable to perish. Like a baby thrown in a field was Israel in Egypt in Egypt. It received no pity from the Egyptian powers, like a baby thrown away. This was a common practice in the pagan world. If you didn't want your baby, you didn't take care of it. Once it was born, you just left it with a cord hanging out of its navel and threw it in a field. Verse 5, no eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you. Babies were rubbed with salt, wrapped in cloths, washed with water, salt being a disinfectant. Nobody had compassion on you, verse 5. You were thrown out into the open field. You were hated on the day you were born. This is a picture of Israel in Egypt. They've barely been formed as a nation in the patriarchal period. And there they are in the field. When I passed by you, verse 6, and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. This is God coming along and rescuing Israel. Israel is described as ugly and bloody and dirty. God sees them squirming, as it were, in the dirt, comes along 
to give them life. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Remember how they grew in the land of Goshen and became a threat to Egypt? You grew up, you became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. This speaks of the fact that Israel began to grow and multiply and flourish, and yet still was not properly cared for, properly honored. Then I passed by you in verse 8 and saw you, and you were at the time for love. You'd, you'd reached mature age. I spread my skirt over you. That was a symbolic way to demonstrate that you desired to marry a young lady. And I covered your, your nakedness. I cloaked you. I swore to you, meaning covering nakedness. I brought a proper garment to cover you, and I determined to take you as my bride. And I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. It was in Egypt that God said, I'm going to take you as my bride. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to anoint you. I'm going to lavish you with gifts. I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. This is all metaphoric language for the Lord coming to the rescue of the nation, caring for the nation, bringing the nation to the land of promise. I clothed you with embroidered cloth, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. Take that, you environmentalists. I wrapped you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head." This is lavish goodness as God takes this nation that was bare with only the most meager adornment and adorns that nation with immense beauty. We all understand, don't we, the wealth began to flourish, didn't it, under Saul and David and Solomon, so much so that the people had more than they needed when they went to build the temple. They brought some of their jewelry, some of their gold. It was melted down to make articles for that house of God. You were adorned, verse 13, with gold and silver. Your dress was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You were so exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And you remember in First Kings it says the Queen of Sheba came to see the wondrous wondrous wealth of Solomon and the people of Israel. You would then assume that a nation of people who had been so lavishly loved by a divine husband would have responded with the right kind of response. Not so. When Israel comes into the land, when Israel is lavished at the pinnacle of their riches under the reign of Solomon, the end is near, right? Because it was after Solomon, the kingdom was fractured, split in half, and one disaster followed another in the north and the south. Here's why. Verse 15, you trusted in your beauty. You played the harlot. I was your husband. I was the one 
who made a covenant with you. I was the one who made you my bride. I was the one who lavished you, says God. But you played the harlot because of your fame. You poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. With shameless abandon, every gracious gift of a loving, loyal husband was taken and devoted to the insanity of spiritual harlotry. What's it talking about? They began to take their lavish gifts and pour them out on the altar of false gods, idols. Children even were offered as sacrifices to Molech, according to 2 Kings 16, 2 Kings 21. My children, God says, Israel becomes an impotent harlot without control, without conscience. You took uh, your embroidered cloth and covered them, and that is idols, and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread which I gave you, fine flour, oil and honey which, with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children, offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. This kind of bold and brazen ingratitude is really stunning that they would respond to God in such a fashion. Verse 23, it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a shrine. You made yourself a high place in every square. These uh, high places were for the worship of all the gods of the Canaanites. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street, made your beauty abominable. You spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians. Your lustful neighbors multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. They made alliances with Egypt. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you, diminished your rations. I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. You played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, yet even with this you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot, when you built your shrine at the beginning of every street, made your high place in every square, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. In other words, you didn't do it for money. You didn't gain anything from it. You gave yourself to false gods and idols freely. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you're different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus you're different. You're not even like a normal harlot who does what she does for personal gain. Thus says the Lord in verse 
35, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, that is, the pagans, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and leave you naked and bare." This is describing what happened in the three great deportations into the Babylonian captivity, culminating in 586 B.C. with the final deportation. They will incite a crowd against you, verse 40, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords, which is exactly what the Babylonians did when they came. They will burn your houses with fire. They will execute judgment on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers, so I will calm my fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you and I will be pacified and angry no more. God will satisfy His wrath with this judgment. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, you enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. And mark it, from the time that Israel went into the Babylonian captivity, the final deportation in 586 B.C., and 70 years later came back under Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to this present day the Jewish people have never followed idols. Never. This was it, God said. You will not do this again. Then in verses 44 and following, and I'm not going to read all of it, all the way down to verse 59, He says, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah who were in the land before there was a nation, before Abraham came. Your wickedness outstrips Sodom. Your wickedness outstrips Samaria. Samaria was in the north, a wicked, evil, pagan city. Sodom was in the south, a wicked, evil, pagan city. He says, Sodom is your sister and Samaria is your sister. You're, you're, you're of that family. And the, the railing goes on against them because of what they had done. Now that gets us down to verse 60, and this is what I want you to see. First word in verse 60 is, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. God had made a promise, and God would keep it. Then... When that time comes, 
you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord." In other words, the day is coming when you will know that I am the Lord. Sodom will be destroyed. Samaria was unredeemed. Israel is worse than Sodom. Israel is worse than Samaria. But God is going to restore Israel. Why? Because He made a covenant with them. So that, verse 63, you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation, listen to this, when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares." Wow! Israel is worse than Sodom. Israel is worse than Samaria. Sodom is destroyed already. Samaria is destroyed and left unredeemed already. But Israel, now constituted in Judah, is a special object of God's love. He will not recover Sodom, and He will not recover Samaria, but He will recover Judah and Israel because He made a promise. He made a covenant. In Jeremiah, 31, verse 3, the Lord appeared and said, I will be God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be My people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Why is any Jew in the nation Israel drawn by God, by His loving kindness? Because He has a covenant of love that He has established. God had every reason to hate the nation with a perfect hatred. But within that nation of Israel, there is a remnant. Why does God treat them this way? Because He made a covenant. One day, He will forgive you for all that you have done. He set His love upon that nation and the people within that nation that He determined He would love savingly. Romans 11.5, Paul says, at the present time, even during Paul's time, as now, as all through history, there is a remnant in Israel according to God's gracious choice. A remnant in Israel according to God's gracious choice. And someday, in the final end, there will be a larger remnant, I believe, than ever when two-thirds of Israel, the rebels, will be purged out, the one-third constituting the final remnant. 
And Romans 11.26 says, Deliver will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. The greatest revival that will ever happen, Isaiah 45.17 refers to it as Israel being saved with an everlasting salvation. This is My covenant, God says in Romans 11.27, when I take away their sins. There is then a promise of a final, great, glorious salvation of a remnant of Jews in the end days. And the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, Romans says. We're moving toward that. But in the meantime, in all ages, there is this remnant. God has not rejected His people which He foreknew, but He has chosen them. And all along through human history, He has chosen and the rest were hardened, says Romans 11, 7. God has determined by His own sovereign purpose to penetrate unbelief, rebellion, and sin, corruption, ingratitude, which would be true of all of us, to penetrate that with saving, transforming love. And He does that for whom He chooses. Turn to 2 Samuel 12. Let me show you another. 2 Samuel 12. This is a very poignant statement. 2 Samuel 12. Verse 24, very interesting statement. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. That's an illicit kind of comfort, by the way. Went into her and lay with her. Not his wife, right? At first. The whole relationship was foul from the beginning. And she gave birth to a son. And he named him Solomon. And look at the next line. David was sinful. Bathsheba was sinful. Solomon was born out of this illicit union. But the next line says, Now the Lord what? Loved him. Why? Did he deserve it? Was this a reward for adultery and murder? The Lord loved Solomon? The prophet Nathan even gave Solomon a nickname in the next verse, sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedediah. He gave him a nickname, Jedediah. What does that mean? Loved by God. The Lord loved Solomon when Solomon was only an infant, not a believer, yet the Lord set His saving love on him and declared it at his birth. Was Solomon worthy of such love? Did he earn it with his vast, incomprehensible sexual sin, his multiple wives, his dabbling in idolatry, his foolish behavior. God set His love on him because God determined to do it. He was delighted to love Solomon graciously. Years after Solomon, after his life was over, Nehemiah returns from Persia to rebuild the walls of uh, from Persian Babylonian Empire. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah discovered, when he got back, that 
Israelites who didn't go off in captivity, who had kind of escaped the captivity and were still back in the land, were, were intermarried with foreign pagan people, idolatrous people. They had married idolatrous women. He outlawed those marriages between Jews and pagans. And he said, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yes, he did. He married all kinds of pagan wives. Yet among the many nations, says Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13, 26, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. Really an astounding reality in the midst of holding up Solomon's sin as a negative example not to be emulated, Nehemiah affirms that this sinner was loved in a special way by God. What an illustration that God loves whom He will in spite of themselves. When He chooses to love redemptively and eternally, He fully forgives and will never release the loved one from that love. Solomon, by the way, despite his sin, came to a place in his life where he responded to the love of God. I think it was later in his life. That's why in Ecclesiastes he says, if there's anything you need to know, it's this. Remember your Creator in the days of your what? Your youth. But 1 Kings 3.3 says, Now Solomon loved the Lord. Now Solomon loved the Lord, in spite of the fact that he sacrificed and burned incense on high places. God set His love on him, and God enabled him to love in return, and even though he sinned, he was forgiven by that sovereign saving love. God's saving love penetrates through rejection, it covers sin, it applies grace, it forgives forever. And it turns the heart of the sinner to love in return. First John 4:19, we love him because what? He first loved us. This is a momentous reality, this kind of love. And that is the kind of love that we experience as believers. That's what he meant in John 13:1, when it says he loved him to the max. Uh, beyond what is physical, beyond common grace, beyond what is temporal, that is limited to this life, to love them spiritually and to love them everlastingly. We don't deserve forgiveness any more than the next person, right? It is purely an act of sovereign love. This is incomprehensible to us. As I've often said, it is darkness to our intellect why He has chosen us, but sunshine to our souls, right? But it never happens in a life that doesn't reciprocate. I'm so glad that it says in 1 Kings 3, 3, Solomon loved the Lord. God initiates the love and we respond. When He sets His saving love on anyone, that life is regenerated. That soul is transformed and begins to love in return. We sing about it, oh, how He loves you and me. And we sing in response to that, I love you, Lord. That's, that's what it means to be a believer. 
but we love Him only because He first loved us. In the councils of eternity, He determined who He would love savingly. And it is for those that He determined to love savingly that Jesus went to the cross and paid in full an actual penalty for their sins. This is what Scripture teaches. When Jesus was on the cross dying in Luke 23, 34, He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, just exactly who was He praying for? Forgive who? Who's them? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Was He saying, forgive all the Romans and bring them all to heaven? No, I don't think so. Was He saying, forgive all the Pharisees and scribes and uh, members of the Sanhedrin and Sadducees and uh, priests who railed against Him and stirred up the crowd? Was He forgiving all the people who screamed, crucify Him? Was He forgiving all the nation who were complicit in His death? What do you mean, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing? What was the prayer and how could it be answered? Well, you can see how it was answered. He was simply affirming the purposes of God to give forgiveness to sinners, even the sinners who were involved in His death. Don't let that change the eternal purpose. And the prayer was answered immediately. One of the two thieves was in paradise that day, right? He was one forgiven. One of the centurions, who tradition calls Longinus, who was in charge of the crucifixion, said, truly, this was the Son of God. The Lord saved a Roman and a thief. And if you get into the book of Acts, it says many of the priests believed on Him. He was praying for the forgiveness of God to be given to those upon whom the Father had set His everlasting love and that the horrendous crime of all crimes sin of all sins would not alter that forgiving love. There were some in the bloodthirsty mob that were forgiven. There was at least one among the Romans and maybe more because the soldiers agreed with what the centurion said. And there was one of the two thieves that experienced that forgiveness. When we think about the salvation that we possess, we give all the glory to God, right? Because it is totally His plan. And yet, the tension comes because sinners bear the responsibility for the rejection. And we always have to say how God resolves that in His own mind, we don't know. But what is clear is that salvation is totally a work of God for which He is to be praised. We give ourselves no credit. He gets all the glory. Father, we thank You for the time we've been able to spend tonight looking at this very often overlooked reality of what it really means to be loved savingly. What can we say? This is staggering truth to us that You would have determined to love us with an everlasting love before anything was ever even created. And that we are here and we belong to You because of that sovereign love. Fill us with gratitude. May we never be like Israel. May we never show one moment of ingratitude, one moment of disobedience, one moment of 
lovelessness toward You. How can we do less than love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength when we have been so loved? Produce that love in us. Shed it abroad in our hearts by Your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
eroticism with stories here on Tributory. publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. There are two different accounts of our history, man's ideas and God's word. 
According to man's ideas of history, humans evolved from ape men who were primitive and unintelligent. Based on this worldview, we should expect our past to be a record full of primitive tools and for advanced civilizations to be relatively new. But the Bible's history records a much different view. Mankind was created in God's image, intelligent from the beginning. Genesis tells us that a few generations after the fall, humans were building cities and working with bronze and iron. Man was never a primitive brute. Around the world we find evidence that ancient man was always highly intelligent. Want to know more about the origin of mankind? Visit our Bible Upholding website to learn about the incredible genius and technologies of ancient man at AnswersRadio.com. Was ancient man a genius? This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. Around the world we see evidence that ancient cultures were highly intelligent. They had a complex knowledge of astronomy. For example, structures from ancient times are so precise that their builders must have known that the earth wobbles as it spins. They knew this caused the constellations to shift. Many cultures also knew that Saturn has rings and that the stars Sirius A and B are actually two stars even though they appear to be a single star in the night sky. The ancients must have used telescopes or lenses. Ancient man was not unintelligent as evolution teaches. Humans were created in God's image and used their minds to accomplish great things from the beginning. To discover more about the true history of mankind, visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and sign up for free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Astounding Ancient Architecture This is Ken Ham, often a guest on radio and TV on the Bible's authority and reliability. Evolution teaches that human society slowly evolved into more complex forms. But the evidence left by past civilizations shows incredible complexity. Huge structures made from massive stones are found across the globe. These stones fit together so precisely that even after thousands of years, we can't slip a credit card through the cracks. Modern engineers still have no idea how these structures were built. The Bible explains why these complex civilizations all arose around the same time. After the flood, God divided the people at the Tower of Babel. From there, they took their shared knowledge, spread out, and began to build cities. The Bible explains what we see in the world. Want to know more about our history as revealed in the Bible and our full-size Noah's Ark? Visit our faith-building website to learn the true history of the world at AnswersRadio.com. Ancient Globetrotters? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Evolution teaches that ancient man was primitive, but the evidence doesn't support this idea. Since the Tower of Babel, mankind has been traveling across the oceans and establishing civilizations. Advanced shipbuilding early in history makes sense because Noah and his sons knew how to build ships and they likely passed this knowledge along. Some suggest that the Americas were visited by many cultures long before Columbus ever set sail. This suggests that ancient man had advanced knowledge of shipbuilding and navigation. Since man was created to fill the earth, it should be no surprise to those who believe the Bible that ancient, intelligent man explored and traveled around the world. Want to know more about the civilizations founded after Babel? Learn more when you visit our information-packed website at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Ancient Math and Technology This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. 
Noah's descendants were great architects and explorers who had a detailed knowledge of astronomy. Evidence shows that ancient man was also capable of using math and science to develop technologies and to build impressive structures. The Chinese are attributed with inventing movable type, writing paper, the seismograph, and even a mechanical clock hundreds of years ago. Ancient Greeks used steam boilers, and in Egypt, builders used math to create remarkable statues of the pharaoh Ramses II. Mankind didn't evolve, but was made in the image of the Creator. For those who believe the Bible's history, it's no surprise our ancestors used their intellects to accomplish great feats. Learn more about the genius of ancient man and how the Bible's history explains our world at AnswersRadio.com. Sign up for free daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
get to the big question. Dr. Richard Weichardt answering the biggie about Adolf Hitler. Was he a Christian? Take it away, interview boy. Was Adolf Hitler, in your estimation, by any definition, as the atheists claim, a Christian? Okay, well, here's going to depend on the definition. You said by any definition. I actually did a debate on this with uh, an atheist, uh, Richard Carrier, uh, and one of our uh, debate questions debate revolved around how to define a Christian, uh, because Hitler did like Jesus. Uh, if you asked Hitler about Jesus, Hitler would have said, yeah, Jesus was a wonderful Aryan fighter who fought against the Jews, and he was an anti-Semite, and so, you know, Hitler... Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Adolf Hitler thought Jesus was, well, a German or Nordic. He was Aryan. Yes, he thought he was Aryan. Okay, how did he get that? Actually, he wasn't the first one to come up with this. This wasn't original with Hitler. There actually were quite a number of anti-Semitic thinkers in the late 19th and especially early 20th century who believed that Jesus had been fathered by a Roman soldier in the area of Galilee, which was a Hellenized region, and that this Roman soldier was Aryan. Uh, and so that, uh, uh, so that Jesus had, of course, obviously they're throwing out the virgin birth. They certainly don't believe in the virgin birth. You know, here, so they think that Jesus is fathered by an Aryan, uh, and that maybe his mother even had some Aryan blood, although they, they didn't know about that or not, but uh, maybe there's some even Aryan blood there. In any case, they thought he's primarily Aryan, uh, and they saw him as uh, a fighter who was fighting against the Jews. And interestingly, the story that Hitler loved most in Scripture, uh, in the Gospels, was the story of Jesus going in the temple, because the way Hitler told it was Jesus was this Aryan fighter holding this whip. And by the way, Hitler, I, I have a picture in my book about Hitler holding a whip. Hitler had his riding crop that he carried around sometimes early on in his career. And I don't know if they, he did that because he wanted to be like Jesus or just because he was defending himself. But he, he liked the story about Jesus going to the temple with a whip, fighting against the Jews, who he saw as the money-grubbing, covetous uh, Jews there in the temple, and driving them out there. But then Hitler thought that Jesus had become a martyr because he stirred up the animosity of the Jews, had been killed by the Jews, but that was it didn't think Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, he didn't think that Jesus' death had any significance other than just as a martyrdom of a, a heroic Aryan figure. In fact, at one time, uh, Hitler, in a speech in the middle of the 1920s, Hitler actually made the very blasphemous statement that he was going to complete what Jesus was unable to complete because Jesus had been killed. On behalf of the early church fathers, I do believe they would respond to the question, was Adolf Hitler a Christian, by saying, lovingly and gently, are you nuts? Adolf Hitler's understanding of the Bible, what was his attitude about the Old Testament? Well, he thought the Old Testament was completely Jewish through and through, and so he had absolutely no... Uh, esteem for the Old Testament. He thought it was a, a tale of, uh, just to give an example, he talked at one point about how uh, Abraham uh, went down to Egypt and basically sold his uh, wife to Pharaoh because he's wanting to do business in Egypt. And, you know, so he had a very low view of the Old Testament as just being the story of, of the, these Jews uh, and their covetousness and greed. And he thought, he thought it revealed their character in a lot of ways, which he thought was very negative, of course. But interestingly, even the New Testament, uh, he thought most of the New Testament was penned by a sneaky rabbi named Saul, uh, who changed his name to Paul to sort of sneak in a lot of Jewish ideas into, into Christianity. So he thought that even though he liked Jesus, 
in certain ways, although he didn't even believe all of what Jesus said either. Uh, but even though he had this, this sort of positive view of Jesus, he thought that Saul had corrupted everything in Christianity from the very start, from the get-go. And so uh, Christianity was, uh, had become Judaized in his view uh, from the, his very origins. So he was actually out there more than, say, the Jesus Seminar. What about Adolf Hitler's belief in the afterlife? Was it Christian? No, he did not believe in a personal afterlife, and he made this clear on a number of occasions. In fact, one time Goebbels in his diaries even made, uh, made the comment that uh, Goebbels thought that we, they did need to believe in a personal afterlife, but that Hitler did not. And, and, and there's a lot of other places, too. Hitler talks at one point, I think this is in his second book, I could be wrong about that, it might be somewhere else, but he mentioned how uh, that we, when we die, we return to the reservoir of nature, basically. So, you know, he had this view that we sort of just go back to nature. We're not really, uh, there's no personal afterlife after death and certainly no punishment or reward uh, in the afterlife in the sense that we would think about it. The only uh, reward that would be in the after, so-called afterlife would be in, in the terms of passing on whatever we would have to our children and grandchildren and such like that. So that would be sort of the afterlife, too, that he would see. All right. Now, let's go back to my original question, which was, was Adolf Hitler by any definition a Christian? Everything that you have described, Richard, I, I, I can't think of anybody these days who would call themselves Christians who had views like Adolf Hitler. Is there any way that we can sneak him under the umbrella of Christianity, considering what he believed about the Old New Testament, the cross, the resurrection, afterlife, the deity of Jesus? Well, yeah, he certainly didn't believe it. He didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus did any miracles. He didn't believe in most of the New Testament. He didn't believe in any of the Old Testament. So, I mean, by the most definitions of Christianity, no, he's not going to fit the definition of what would be a Christian. By any definition, and there are a lot of them these days, Adolf Hitler was not a Christian. In Great Britain, a woman was just taken to court for committing the high crime of sharing her faith in the workplace. One more sign of the window of opportunity to preach the gospel freely is closing. We want to take advantage of the open window we have and reach more university students with the gospel than ever before. Our campaign is called Rescue the Perishing. Would you please support us in our effort to preach the gospel to these very confused, very hurting, and very lost kids? If you can support us any amount, we would be profoundly grateful. That was from Richard's YouTube page. That's Richard, W-R-E-T-C-H-D. And then uh, their Rescue of Harrison campaign is at wretched.tv slash rescue. And wretched.tv slash rescue. And you can find out the main page at wretched.tv, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot TV. Actually, TV. And you see me and Lois Cantrell here on Trippy Radio. And I'm going to do this. This is Sweet Song Salvation from Goldfish. Here on Trippy Radio. 
I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Yeah. 
complete salvation and now for a slower pace this is Go Fish with the Old Road Cross here on Tributory.
that was all road cross for go fish and now we have from wretched says a young man ties his fellow millennials and knots here on tributary. It seems if we can read these signs of the times, not as prophets who know the future, but simply studying what is going on in culture, we might know what it looks like in our society for the propagation of the Christian gospel in the future. And it would appear the signs are telling us, "Uh uh-oh, you better get on it, Christian. May I ask you, what are you doing to participate in the Great Commission? Please know you can go because you've been sent, or if you don't want to go, you can stay and hold the rope for those who do. In other words, you can get out there and preach the gospel or support them in some way, shape, or form. Hold the rope for people who are willing to preach the gospel while we still can. So there was a dress designer that turned down Melania Trump to design her dress. She, she opted out. Um, do you think that she has the right to do that? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Do you think it's okay for her to do that? Yeah. You should be able to control your business in that regard, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's that, I guess that's that company's choice, right? I mean, it's a free market. That's what most conservatives want anyway, so. Do you think that she has the right to do that? The dress designer? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, ma'am. You're going to be caught in a trap. What is he doing? He's using a story from American Headlines. The dressmaker for Mrs. Obama refused to make a dress for Mrs. Trump, and she was applauded by the left. It is totally within her rights to turn down somebody, to refuse to provide a service for somebody based on her personal convictions and beliefs. Now, this young man with the beard, who it seems to me must be a part of the Young, Restless, and Reform movement because (laughs) they all wear beards, he's now going to go a step further to try to illuminate these young people and help them understand that their position is not exactly consistent. Listen very carefully to how he sets them up. So you have the right to opt out of business that you might not want to associate yourself with? Yes. So if you were, let's say, a a Muslim singer here in Madison and a church approached you for an Easter service for you to sing, do you have the right to opt out of that? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you have the the right to opt out of doing whatever you want. (sighs) I think, yeah, yeah, I think, I guess so. That seems like such an unusual circumstance that uh, they would want them, like that the Christian church would want to force a Muslim singer to sing at their church if they didn't want to. I would feel like if I was Muslim, I would, it would be hard to work with someone. Yeah, if that goes against your religious views, I feel like you have the right to turn that down. Yes, you do have the right to turn that down, unless, of course, There's a law that says you do not have religious liberty. There's actually a city ordinance that would allow those groups to sue you. 
by opting out, by turning down their, their request. Do you think that's a good law? Probably not. So the law is saying what now, that the, that the Muslim singer can opt out? Can't opt out. Cannot opt out. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what the law says? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's an okay law? I don't believe so, no. No, not at all. That's... I feel like that goes against people's rights. So, pretty much, do you think that a law should exist that would force somebody to do the work? Absolutely not. They are all on the tee, and they are all going to get hammered. So, let's say you're a Christian photographer here in Madison, yeah. and someone approached you to do a same-sex wedding. Would, would that be hateful or discriminatory to opt out of that? have the right to do that? Um, in that situation, probably not, because that would bring up some legal issues, I, I would suspect. Like that city ordinance, right? Yes, yeah. The one that you so, didn't agree with? Yeah. Yeah. Bing! Bing! <laughs> Bing! Springs popping out of that kid's head. And now, to do a recreation of the sound effects that were made while that clip was running in the studio. Would you be kind enough? No! If it was switched to, like, Christian views or something, they wouldn't be able to do that. And also, I don't know, I just think it should be, like, fair all around. I think it's very difficult to determine uh, what reason it is that you make that decision, unless you're very steadfast in your religion saying, no, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. In which case, that's, yeah, you're... A jerk for doing that. <laughs> so your political views, your ideas, and kind of worldview is okay to say no to business, but your religious views aren't. No. <sighs> That's such a sticky issue. Yeah, <laughs> it is. When your worldview is inconsistent, what do we do with this well-orchestrated, well-crafted? scenario that the young restless and reform guy performed at the University of Wisconsin at Madison I think we can use it but very very carefully if and we use a tactic like this to gotcha sing set you up knocked you down then I think we failed totally you see we can put a million pebbles in somebody's shoe and they can get a sore foot but they will never get saved. Our goal, our agenda in an encounter with somebody who is not a believer is not to one-up, to out-logic them. It is to lead them to the cross. So let's use this scenario. I think it was brilliantly done, but let's use it very, very carefully. Now, the young restless and reform guy, apparently, Ask a question that is going to cause you to jump up and down screaming, Pick me! Pick me! I know the answer to this one! <laughs> Pick me! Everyone agreed that a creative professional should have the foundational freedom to decline work that conflicts with their conscience and beliefs. But when faced with a situation that conflicts with current cultural expectations, like a Christian photographer declining to promote a same-sex wedding, the gears start grinding. If a law that forces someone to promote something that's against
against their beliefs is so laughable, so unimaginable, then why is it so difficult to extend that same freedom to a Christian creative professional? Because they're Christians. (laughs) This is a battle between light and darkness, which is why you don't see the feminists, the LGBTQ people going after Islam because they're basically on the same team. Darkness typically does not war against darkness, but it does war against the light, and we are seeing that increasingly. How lost and hurting is our world? Take a look at this young man who paid a cosmetic surgeon $50,000 to transition into becoming a Martian. This young man apparently watched a sci-fi movie from the 1940s and concluded, that's what a Martian must look like, that's what I feel I am. He gathered up the funds and he persuaded a human being to take a scalpel to his face and transition him into looking like what we think a Martian might possibly look like, not to mention the society that embraces it. Our world is lost and our world is hurting, and there is one solution, the gospel. Will you join us in rescuing the perishing that was from Richard, and then the last verse is Rescue Perishing. Um, get www.richard.tv slash perishing, I mean slash rescue. So www.richard.tv slash rescue. And then also their main site is wretched.tv, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot TV, wretched.tv. Yes, and we must control if you're a Truthy Toll Radio. And find us on Facebook as uh, Truth Be Told Radio, and Twitter as Truth Be Told Radio, but it's just Truth, the letter B, Told Radio, uh, no no B. And um, let's see, then they'll play from Go Fish, Sweet Song of Salvation here on Truth Be Told Radio. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Oh 
Once again, that's Sweet Song of Salvation by Glowfish. Check them out at glowfishguys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S dot C-O, glowfishguys.com. And you can find our vlog at um, truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com, truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. And... That's it for the show, so we're going to go out with Yancy and friends singing the B.I. Really. Bye for now. The B.I.